Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Donald Trump made part of his 2016 presidential campaign about getting a fair deal. When the Chinese come in and they want to make great trade deals and they make the best trade deals and not anymore... When I'm there, we turn it around, folks. We turn it around. And so when he took office, he made the U.S. trade deficit with China a key part of his trade policy. We have a problem with China. They've uh, created a trade deficit of $500 billion a year. It's not something we can live with. But the way that he and his administration went about getting this supposedly fair deal ignited a full-blown trade war. We're having a little squabble with China. We've gone up trillions and trillions of dollars since the election. Uh, They've gone way down since my election. And now it's become a battle that could significantly change the way our smartphones, laptops, and other electronics are made. This is Behind the Money. I'm Amy Keene. On this episode, how the electronic supply chain is breaking down under pressure from the U.S. and from the pandemic. It's a story of spying and tit-for-tat tariffs and of companies rethinking their manufacturing operations. And it starts with the era of globalization. One morning in June, some 20 years ago, I was on a rich man's son. I had everything that money could buy, but freedom starts with the fall of the Soviet Union. There was this view in the US and much of the West that we were somehow at the end of history, that the tense world that we've been living in for so long had ended, and the future was going to be you know, this inescapable march towards greater unity. One where liberalism and capitalism were going to win out. And therefore, it was an opportunity for companies to create global operations. That's Richard Waters, the FT's West Coast editor. He's covered Silicon Valley for many years. We were sitting in the U.S. You no longer had to think about building everything down the road. You could tap into companies uh, in countries around the world because the future was going to be this kind of tight-knit business world where everybody shared this mutual interest. I think the incentives in companies were changing back then. The people who ran companies were being pushed by the financial markets to cut out all the least profitable parts of their operation, to outsource uh, and offshore a lot of their low-value work, maximize their profits, because the stock market wanted that and corporate bonuses were based on that. And it was really an amazing time for, you know, for the structure of American industry when a lot of this manufacturing went to Asia where labor was cheap and companies had perfected the model of contract manufacturing. Contract manufacturing is something that most consumers probably don't know exists, but which absolutely dominated the way most of the things we use today are made. That's Catherine Hilla, the FT's Greater China correspondent. 
So the companies thinking up the products or, or designing the products are normally not the ones running the factories where those products are made. Companies like Foxconn. It's also a Taiwanese company. It's the largest electronics contract manufacturer in the world for everything. They make lots of the components in the iPhone themselves, others they buy from other companies, and then they are in charge of the assembly process. In the 1990s, Foxconn was already expanding rapidly and very successful, but a problem was emerging, and that was uh, rising labor costs in Taiwan. China was emerging as the world's low-cost manufacturing center, which made it a magnet for many parts of the electronic supply chain. And economic ties between Taiwan and China were improving, too. So in that context, it became possible for Taiwanese companies to work with China and in China. So they started investing there because labor was a lot cheaper there. Lots of companies like that started shifting production lines from Taiwan to China to lower costs. And as tech assembly lines went to China, the manufacturers who made related components shifted their operations there, too. You started getting the formation of these huge clusters because they had very, very close proximity to each other. Manufacturing became very efficient and you could cut down on inventory and on transport and logistics times. And it all became a huge well-oiled machine. Foxconn became a symbol of this new way of doing business, not just as a contract manufacturer, but also within a bigger cluster of manufacturing companies. What drove the creation of these electronics manufacturing clusters in China in the first place was the emergence of a mass market for electronics. But then the PC came along and the laptop. And Taiwan was really in a very strong position. It had built this production knowledge and capability. It really was there to seize this kind of massive new market that came out of almost nowhere in the 90s and rode the PC wave to global dominance. And so that was one thing that happened. And then there was the smartphone. The biggest and the fastest boost we've seen to that model has probably been the rise of the smartphone. So that happened only after the iPhone hit the market. I think you only have to look at the iPhone to see this this entire global system working at its maximum effect. So the iPhone was launched in 2007. Rather than hundreds of millions of devices, it was billions of devices. And this industry went from nothing to global almost overnight. I mean, it took many years for PCs to build up and to become common items that we all had on our desks. It took two or three years for smartphones to become ubiquitous. And this was Apple's understanding of being able to manage um, this entire new manufacturing base. Tim Cook, who now runs Apple, rose within the company because he was the supply chain guy. He was the operations guy. He knew how to keep all the trains running and make this massively complex global system work. And so you only have to look at the iPhone to see really the the kind of high point of global tech. It was the rise of these specialized manufacturers like Foxconn that helped reshape the U.S. tech industry. The other thing that was happening in the U.S. was the rise of Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley was all about software and intellectual property and design. Companies like Apple, we think of them as making things. Well, they design it, but then they send all the grunt work off to somewhere else. 
So those forces all came together to create this kind of massive shift in the whole structure of an industry within a decade. But not long after the smartphone's release, would this well-oiled globalized machine come under pressure? It started with the relationship between the U.S. and China. It was a bit of a something that actually happened on both sides between the U.S. and China. Uh, my name is Ed Snowden. I'm uh, 29 years old. I work when Edward Snowden Alan came out with his revelations about how the U.S. security services were watching and spying on other countries, that kicked off a series of concerns in China over their reliance on Western technology products. This was the Snowden scandal. And it really was, you know, maybe it shouldn't have been a surprise to everybody in quite the way it was, but to have it so forcefully pointed out, you know, really changed, I think, the direction of technology because it showed that as an independent country buying technology from overseas or sending communications over the internet, you could no longer trust the US not to be looking over your shoulder. And it led other countries, and particularly China, to say, we can't live with this anymore. We need our own production base. We need our own technology. It started driving Chinese policymakers' ideas about building up more of a domestic supply chain. It was more about, well, can we build our own computer and software ecosystem, that kind of thing, and switch more of government procurement to Chinese sources only. You know, all the corporations and governments had been running on software and hardware coming out of, you know, all the great U.S. companies suddenly started to try and build their own communication equipment, networking equipment that had come out of the U.S. We started to see this big effort in China to replace it all. Companies such as Xiaomi, ZTE, and Huawei. With that happening, concerns also started to rise on the Western side of things. And in many companies, the discussions developed around, okay, so if the Chinese have concerns like this, we should also have concerns about them. And that was kind of a very powerful reason for Western governments and Western companies to think about cutting some of the links between Western technology companies and China. There are two companies left in America, uh, those that have intellectual property that have been hacked and know it, and those who have intellectual property that have been hacked and don't know it. If you look at the last 10 years, basically, between the US and China, were marred with a, a series of recurring accusations from the US in China's direction about hacking and cyber espionage. Today we are announcing an indictment against five officers of the Chinese People's Liberation Army for serious cybersecurity breaches against six American victim companies. We have this pattern of rising Chinese cyber capabilities, and these cyber capabilities were being used not only in what called classic espionage, looking for political or military secrets, but according to the U.S. accusations, they were combined with the collection of Western trade secrets and technological know-how and intellectual properties. Then, in September of 2015, Chinese President Xi Jinping made a visit to the U.S. to meet with then-President Barack Obama. The two of them announced that they had reached an agreement and that Mr. Xi had promised to stop this cyber espionage. We've agreed that neither the U.S. or the Chinese government will conduct or knowingly support cyber-enabled theft of intellectual property 
including trade secrets or other confidential business information for commercial advantage. For a while, the U.S. said that the frequency of such hacking incidents actually went down, but only to uh, re-emerge a couple of years later. Companies like Quanta Computer, which manufactures servers for the likes of Google, Facebook, and Amazon, moved their production out of China. They were clear uh, that this was happening uh, on the request of their customers. So there were increasingly fears that China might, in order to to spy on the U.S. or other Western countries, might somehow compromise this hardware which was being manufactured in Chinese factories. That was the first big wave. And next were some manufacturers of specialized components used in telecom infrastructure, Wi-Fi gear, uh, base stations, that kind of thing. What happened next was, well, Donald Trump happened next. When the new Trump administration came in and, and promised to make this an issue that they were going to fight, there was really strong backing in Silicon Valley. You know, here was a, here was a White House that was going to take China on on an issue, on an issue that was really important to tech companies in the U.S. Not only were there concerns about spying and stealing company secrets, the U.S. claimed that China actively encouraged IP theft and patent infringement in exchange for market access. This is what tech companies thought the Trump administration was going after. You know, what we saw at the beginning of the Trump era was this real, you know, sense that it's time to push back against China. But what actually happened uh, wasn't what the tech companies thought they were going to get. What happened was that the Trump White House launched a trade war. We have a massive trade deficit with China, a deficit that we have to find a way quickly, and I mean quickly, to balance. The Trump White House claimed that by fighting a trade war with China, they would be able to force concessions from China on some of these very important issues around intellectual property. But actually, what came out of this period was just the trade war. We had tariffs on Chinese goods. I love tariffs, but I also love them to negotiate. And right now, China is paying us billions of dollars a year in tariffs. And I haven't even started. If some companies already had reason to reconsider manufacturing in China, Trump's tariffs added pressure. It created a second potential driver, which was cost or the threat of additional cost for companies whose products ran the risk of being hit by U.S. tariffs. 98% of what comes in here from China will be tariffed. We're talking about $164 billion worth of goods, clothing, diapers. One year into the trade war and more than 50 companies have announced or are reportedly considering plans to move their production out of China. Then the question arose, okay, do we need to move at least the part of the production that is earmarked for the U.S. market, do we need to move that to somewhere outside of China? And in many cases, moving production meant only um, a certain part of final assembly uh, that would then allow you to declare the goods as made in wherever, Mexico, Vietnam, but not China. And then the Trump administration made another move. The president has signed the executive order entitled Securing the Information and Communications Technology and Services Supply Chain. This is part, the White House says, of the president's commitment to protecting information and comms technology. It put Huawei, the big Chinese telecoms company, on a series of restricted lists. 
Now, these lists meant that U.S. suppliers or customers couldn't sell to or buy from Huawei, all out of concern that the Chinese company was spying on the U.S. and on Americans. We had attempts to block Huawei, shut it out of global markets, you know, the big Chinese communications company. And given the global tech industry, the global nature of the tech supply chains that have been built up, to suddenly just step in front of this and say, we're going to set up trade barriers, created huge problems for the entire tech industry. And that isn't just in China, that's in the US as well. So US chip companies that relied on on a supply chain that extended to China suddenly found they were getting hit with tariffs. And Huawei was huge customer, huge and very important customer for these companies. They were just losing sales. And so we had this rather perverse effect where the US government claiming to be fighting China on behalf of its own industry was actually causing the tech industry a lot of pain. Then in January, there was talk of a preliminary trade deal with China, something that might give reprieve to the companies hit with tariffs. Well, until the pandemic hit. During the Lunar New Year holiday, the Chinese government reached the point where they were ready to publicly acknowledge that there was a huge problem and there was this epidemic going around. So they delayed the reopening of factories all over the country after the Lunar New Year holiday. Quarantines and restrictions on movement prevented hundreds of thousands of people who had gone back to their home provinces from returning to manufacturing hubs in Shenzhen or Henan. So what you had was basically the manufacturing, electronics manufacturing hub for the world was forcibly shut down for, well, in practice, for more than a month. Also, transport links had been shut down for such a long time. Then international trade was started to be affected. You started seeing the emergence of shortages in all sorts of components or materials. So often stuff was held up just over the lack of one tiny little piece that was stuck in some warehouse or could be made in time. It was a very, very big challenge for every company involved at every node. The initial few months, June or July, most companies were scrambling just to keep things going and figure out how do we get that ship load through? How do we make sure this is produced in time? That kind of stuff. The coronavirus shutdown, at least in China's manufacturing hubs, was relatively short-lived, but it prompted many companies to reconsider the manufacturing operations they had come to rely on for decades. I think for many companies and for many industries, it has changed things forever. Attention in many companies in in, uh, global electronics supply chains shifted to how do we prevent this kind of thing uh, from happening again? And Many companies have decided that the current model or the past model of just-in-time low inventory is too risky, that um, even though it looks like it's the lowest cost model, in fact, if you have one event every few years like this one, and if you count that in, then the cost calculation looks very different because you will have huge losses from that. As a result, many companies no longer think that the past model of having one global hub for everywhere is enough. Many are looking at second or even third manufacturing hubs that would be closer to the end market. And many of these companies expect that in several years' time, 
that their supply chain will be more like a network, will still have a very sizable China component, but then they will have separate manufacturing hubs for other markets. It looks like one will be in Southeast Asia centered on Vietnam. One will certainly be in India, but maybe more for the Indian domestic market than for global markets. And then the question is, the US will probably be partly supplied from Southeast Asia, but also partly from Mexico. What Catherine describes here is a profound shift that could have far-reaching effects on the global economy for years to come. That is, if companies do pull up stakes and shift operations to other manufacturing hubs. And these adjustments won't happen overnight. But many executives are waiting on something else. We're going after China in the wrong way. China is stealing intellectual property. That's got to end. With President-elect Joe Biden due to be inaugurated in January, the question is whether Washington's approach to China could change. It could end the trade war that is one of the kind of sore points of this uh, fallout between the U.S. and China. Now, I don't think it ends the disputes. I think we're in for, you know, this decoupling anyway. Though tariffs might go away, the decoupling is likely to continue. My impression is that in the U.S., a consensus has now built across party lines on a more hawkish or less cooperative relationship with China and that there's more concerns about China overall. All these things, in my mind, mean that, yes, this huge shift is happening and it's here to stay, and it will lead to a different global economic model, which is no longer globalization as we know it. It's going to be something else. What will be interesting to watch, of course, is to what degree the separation really occurs and to what extent Western companies and maybe especially American companies can retain access to the Chinese market because the political push from the U.S. government to decouple with China, not just for supply chain security, but overall cut off lots of economic links. That is certainly strengthening considerations or efforts in China to get a higher level of self-reliance in lots of things. If things are not handled well, we may end up in a kind of vicious cycle of protectionism with some kind of Chinese bloc and uh, Western bloc deny each other uh, or each other's companies access to their markets. I mean, that's it's quite easy to imagine how that might happen. And that's, of course, risky. You can read more from Catherine, Richard, and the rest of our colleagues reporting on tech and global trade. You can find it all at FT.com. Behind the Money is produced by Oluwakemi Aladisui. Green Turner is our sound engineer. And Liam Nolan is our editor. We'll be back next week. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 
36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.